hey, you know when you're a kid and your parents tell you you're not old enough, maybe you'll understand when you're a little bit older. Well, damn it, America, we are old enough. And so is the 18% of Congress under the age of 45. And you know why? Because the average voter is 38 years old. So we are old enough, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer and all you other oldies who still are trying to figure out what the hell Saltburn is about. This is Political Playlist. Happy hour. Welcome to Political Playlist. <laughs> all right. Are we ready, guys? Happy hour. Happy, Happy hour. hour. <laughs> that out. Oh, so God. Hey everybody Jesus and welcome. Hey everybody and welcome to Political Playlist Happy Hour. That is called a passion in draw. You're very passionate. You literally bright <laughs> red from whatever conversion well, you're doing. This is anyway, guys, this is one of those shows where it's best to start drinking early and uh, you know it'll all work itself out in the end. What are you drinking? I, What's on your mind? Anthony, why don't you go since Michael is not okay. Well, I'm drinking you know, so much Robitussin right now. <laughs> a lovely Heineken, you know. I'm a Denver beer guy now. But that's not a Denver beer. This <laughs> is beer. I mean, I actually just what Michael was saying. I was just talking to someone today about that concept where at a certain age you sort of flip, where either it's your parents or someone who's like a mentor to you, where you kind of go, I see you in a different light, and sometimes mm -hmm. it's not the better light. Right? right? Yeah, you realize they're human, they have faults, <laughs> right? It's, it's normal. And I think that's happened a lot with our politicians, especially. Mm. And that's why I hope younger people are running. So run, baby, run. That's good. Wow. Did not think that was going to be coming out of you today. Can we just talk about Taylor Swift becoming a right-wing conspiracy? Yes. I yes. am like... <laughs> I thought you would never bring it up. <laughs> this really is, did you this is insane and by the way yep. as somebody who is a devout cable news watcher and by the way all the cable news channels like i have them all on every show that has been leading with this story it's insane That's so crazy insane by yeah. the way this is so smart yeah. for them to be doing who for who? Which, the news or who? who like no one yeah. we yeah, no, so and, go and ahead and tell the story they? first and I'll give my response. Yeah, is it, it, it's like <laughs> it is a conspiracy. Okay, yeah. so here's the spark note. Basically, because of Taylor Swift and Travis Kelsey's popularity and because Republicans know that Taylor Swift has, in the last few elections, come out as a Democrat. Or I shouldn't say Democrat, but mm. someone who supports Democratic policies. And that was somewhat controversial because of her country roots, one might say. But because mm. she and Travis Kelsey are essentially having the best two years that any two people could ever have in the entire world. <laughs> well, two years. Um, oh, oh, you mean, yeah, the, like each of them. Having having a year, yeah. yeah, they're yeah, each yeah. having like the best year of their life. <laughs> in, insane. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But but now the the big very I would say it started out very far right. But now it's become this like normal conservative idea that it's all rigged and that the Chiefs are going to win and it's all rigged so that like Travis Kelsey can have a bigger platform and then Taylor and Travis can basically come out and like say they support Biden and that it's all been this like conspiracy yeah. to give them more of a microphone as if they don't already have a big one already. But it is right. wild. It's wild. Like, and you know what? I actually saw, sorry, I just have one more thing to say, but I actually saw such a good like sort of emotional response to this which was 
Taylor's, I'm not like a Swifty, but I have grown an appreciation for her just sort of as a cultural icon. Well, and Anthony and I are devout Swifties. Go on. Yeah, we I are. So, but keep anyway, going. But Shame I, but I know a lot of people who are like genuinely obsessed with Taylor Swift. And I think that someone, someone wrote this and I thought this was so poignant of like Taylor Swift and specifically her relationship with Travis Kelsey is something that has the power, if isn't already, to bring people together. Mm. But it's something that feels like positive and exciting. And you're watching these two people who seem to be good, nice, kind people have all of this success together. And it's something that like is this optimistic thing in our world that's filled with pessimism. And that like the basically like the like conservative <laughs> movement like can't handle like can't handle that this yeah. can be like a nice thing for society. Well, so let me let everyone me, just be happy for that. Let me kind of <laughs> like I like I have some rose colored glasses. So I'm like, just let us all be happy. Like what, whatever your beliefs are. So I was also reading some interesting analysis of this and what to kind of take this to a deeper, darker place. Right. Oh, a lot of so, <clears throat> you know, Swift came out in, you know, very pro LGBT rights, very pro women's right to choose. And, you know, a lot of the sort of political stances that she has taken and that have been seen as progressive among folks on the right, it, it kind of goes, there's a very interesting thing that's a, a sociological race issue going on here that you know, a lot of people, particularly white conservative Americans, look at Beyonce, look at Rihanna, look at these other pop stars. And there's a sense of feeling like Taylor Swift is ours. OK, mm -hmm. and white? yes, exactly, because she's this white country star blonde that like that's what conservative America sees as like much more akin to them than these other, you know, more racially diverse pop stars. And so, again, this is what this article was sort of this was the thesis of it, which I thought was really interesting, which was that there's a feeling among conservative America that Taylor Swift sort of betrayed them a little mm -hmm. bit and betrayed some of their values. And so I think that that, that that's sort of the like the darker underbelly engine that's going on here, that they're feeling like, okay, and now this sort of, you know, our girl who's now come out as like a Democrat, right? And a traitor is now also tainting and taking over the football conversation, which again was like the last conservative bastion, you know? And so it's like, this is, and so you can see, like when you start to look at it through that, I think that this starts to make a little bit more sense as far as like why the conservative right wing machine would be latching on to a story like this. And as you said, and I thought you put it so well, it's like, yes, we should be like so such in such a good feeling watching these two like great people have great years. And it's like, wow, they're doing cool stuff and they're happy like. God forbid anyone be happy in the world. You know what I mean? Or that we root for somebody's success. And yet I think that it, it's now becoming a divisive thing. 
for for ridiculous reasons, you know. So 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 for wow. starters, yeah. I love love, but <laughs> two, this is such a smart thing for the conservatives. Mm-hmm. I think what they're trying to play here mm-hmm. is they're trying to get ahead of this, yeah. right? And they're trying to taint Taylor Swift because look at how much she's given to economies. Like she's literally been brought up in congressional hearings. Well, also yeah. like the when she the, posted about voter registration day, like the, hundreds right. of thousands of people registered to vote. The, the, the Fed talked about her. Uh, it just came out uh, today or yesterday that she made $350 million for the NFL and the Chiefs just from her <laughs> attending these games. Wow. Like that's wild. And she has a history of endorsing Democrats. So I think, and literally like Taylor Swift, in my opinion, can't do wrong right now. Right. I mean, and I think this is very dangerous for them to even do after coming off of her whole AI nudity images that went mm. throughout the internet Why she was taken yeah. off of Twitter. Like you're going to take, you want to take down Taylor Swift? Like, I'm sorry, but. That's prime. The city- girls. Yeah. I think she's, she's bigger than the Fed. Yeah. At this point. Okay. And. And I think them trying to taint her is they're trying to get ahead of it. But yeah, that but idea. I think that it's stupid. I think it's going to be a short lived thing because it's like, I think also there are more people who are conservative who still like Taylor Swift. Like, I think that we, un- we're constant, not we, but like politics is constantly undermining the fact that like most people don't think in these like stark extreme terms you know like i think there are plenty of conservative people out there who might be like oh i wish that taylor swift wasn't pro-choice but like i love her music you know like i like not every person going to these concerts was a democrat let's just put it that way and so it's Uh like i think that it's like a very strange conspiracy to like hatch like it has in kind of this mainstream way because a, it's just so obviously not true, but also... Because, well, we don't know that, Anna. We don't know that. Okay, know. where's the proof? But it just, I don't know, to me, it just like reeks of desperation. It's like, really? Like, you're going yeah. after... That's why I kind of brought up this emotional thing of like, you're not just going to like let these two people inspire mm-hmm. people to be happy. Like They're they celebrities, you can. Come on. What? Yeah. You, they're celebrities. And like, you know... It, like Travis Kelsey is, you know, talk telling people to get the vaccination. Right. right. They're calling it's, him Mr. Pfizer, which is yeah, so, Pfizer sellout. Yeah. I, anyway, it's wild. And uh, like, I think that, I mean, I'm guessing the most people who are listening to this. Well, like what I think is also interesting too, and this kind of dovetails into my tweet, which is that it seems like there's a lot of young voices far right voices talking about this and and really Vivek Ramaswamy, Charlie Kirk, you know, these people are. Yeah, those are staples of Republican. Right. But it's it's wild to see, like, I feel like young, like our young leaders and our young voices on the left and the right are getting more polarized than when we first started this, that. Like on the whole, we we kind of I like I feel like when we started political playlists, we were talking about how, oh my God, there's so many like issues that young Republicans and Democrats are finding common ground on and 
starting to agree on. And there's like great bipartisanship among the young leaders. And I feel like we're in the last year, we are seeing that just absolutely shredded to pieces. Do you guys feel that way or no? I agree. I think that I mean, I think that we have to be careful to generalize because I think there is a lot of great work happening between young people on certain issues. But I think that what has happened is that, of course, the issues that always end up taking center stage or like the issues that catch wind in the news or whatever are always the ones that are going to be the most divisive and the most polarized. But I agree with you in the sense that I think like, you know, there was like that study showing that more like 18 year old boys are now sort of identifying with like the conservative right. movement than they have before, which is not to say that that's divisive or anything like that. But I think there's a there's a push amongst like Charlie Perk is like our age, but I would argue that he actually caters more to like a Gen Z. Yeah. And I think similarly, like AOC is our age, but I think caters to more of kind of like the Gen Z hyper progressive crowd. Those are two very obvious examples, but there are more. Um, as an, I, as an 18 year old boy, I identify with the conservative movement. I You're see. an 18 year old boy? Mentally, mm. mentally, mentally, yeah, yeah. <laughs> mentally, right. emotionally, and otherwise. So, so let's yeah. let's go into you're, the you're a real Benjamin Button. What's your tweet? okay? All right, so I am going to speaking of what a difference three years makes, I'm going to bring it back to a little thing called Jan Six. Okay, God, quote. This is truly a tragic day for America. I fully condemn the dangerous violence and destruction that occurred in the United States Capitol. Americans have a constitutional right to protest and freedom of speech, but violence in any form is absolutely unacceptable. This preposterous, excuse me, the perpetrators of this un-American violence and destruction must be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And I'm sorry, he, was, or he or she is talking about January 6th? January 6th. This is, yeah. A little bit late to the party here, Michael. Yeah. So yeah, it's, this is kind of a fun one okay. and maybe a little bit misleading. But it's let a me Republican give you a, then. Let me give you a hint. It's a Republican. I think it is. And this kind of goes back to what I was just saying. Right. That we're and, more and polarized. The, where have Republicans drifted and who has sort of drifted in a, in a rather stunning. Nancy uh, Mace. Very close, very close. Yeah, Anthony, Anthony. I don't have an answer, I'm going to say. Oh, guys, it's, it's Elise Stefani. Oh, wow. Yeah. So oh, was this tweet from literally January 6th? So this was from January 6th, and there's a little bit of a backstory here. So Elise Stefanik, number three Republican in the House. She's a Republican from upstate New York, the 21st district. And she began her career as we started covering her as a very kind of moderate, you know, standard conservative, had some, uh, a lot of bipartisan efforts that, that she made with different things and has just completely gone in the, in the far right direction. And so why I wanted to bring this up was because this was tweeted by Liz Cheney last week. And there's been this big back and forth going on between Liz Cheney, what is otherwise the elder, you know, stateswoman of the Republican Party, or rather the former elder stateswoman of the former Republican Party, and Elise Stefanik representing the new and the young. 
And there's been this real sort of back and forth between them. They're, they're now like they're mortal enemies. Are and they like so, in a Twitter fight? <laughs> and they are. And so, so no. here's what's crazy. So Liz Cheney tweets out this statement that was like, hey, guys, remember that Elise Stefanik, you know, like she was calling Stefanik like a total crackpot. Stefanik's chirping back, being like, you're never going to hold office again. So that she, Liz Cheney sends out this, this tweet. And then the, the statement and tweet disappears from Elise Stefanik's website and disappears from her Twitter. So clearly they went in and deleted it. So then wow. Liz Cheney tweets again, being like, it was brought to my attention that somebody on her staff deleted this. So I just want to remind you again what she said. And it was like <laughs> an image of the thing. So it was, I mean, epic trolling. But here's what I think is the bigger question. And this is what I want to ask you guys. Obviously, I think there's been a radical pull to the right with Elise Stefanik. And one Republican pollster, a woman named Christine Matthews, described this fight as the story of two women, one who put principles above ambition and the other who put ambition above principles. And so my question is, what do you guys think? How do you guys think that this Elise Stefanik shift in ideology, in, in conduct, et cetera, is going to play among young voters and young Republicans and young women? In moderates, independents, Republicans in the suburbs, her, her district is, is definitely a suburban rural district. And, you know, th this is this is an utter whitewashing of January 6th. I mean, she's now gone on to say that calling the convicted felons the Jan 6 Patriots hostages. or something. Yeah. The Jan 6 hostages. hostages. Yeah. yeah. You know, I so think, what do you think this I, says about? I mean, everything? I don't feel that she's like at, at danger of losing her district. I feel mm -hmm. like it's kind of the McConnell thing where like once you've become such a name and you have such fundraising power, like it's just, you know, she's not going to get beat. But I think that where she maybe is going to lose some ground or steam and whatever that looks, maybe just like approval wise, is going to be amongst like suburban women, but also suburban men, you know, men who are more moderate conservatives who kind of have the bullshit meter of like, they don't want to vote for Trump, you know, maybe have in the past, but maybe are feeling weird about it this time. And I think that, but I think that ultimately, it doesn't matter because I think she's she's going to stay in office, whether it's as a representative, whether as in the potential second Trump presidency, you know, like in the executive branch, whatever. I don't think I think she knows that she's not. And the calculation that I believe she's making is that she's not in any danger of being pushed out like Liz Cheney was by voters or by her own party. Mm -hmm. And. I would be curious to revisit this conversation in like, you know, eight years when Elise Stefanik, I think inevitably will still be in politics, but might be behaving a bit more like Elise Cheney again. If things kind of like die down and come around, because I think that Elise is somebody who rides the tide of power. Mm -hmm. And I think that unfortunate, I really liked her. Like I really thought... That she was representative of what this like young conservative woman could be who was talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. Who had like real conservative values, but was representative of our generation and was representative 
of kind of like moving forward in our country and, and recruiting young Republican women and to run for office. I mean, yeah, she doesn't talk about any of that. Anymore. No, like, no. All she talks about is beating the Trump drum. And yeah. so, but my point being that I think that she's really I mean, she's a very smart person. I think she knows exactly what she's doing. And I think that she sees this as a means to an end. And that end, I think, ultimately is becoming then. And I think that she's just banking on the fact that people forget, like people forgot that she wrote this tweet. And that was three years ago. In eight years, when she decides to run for president, people are going to forget that she, you know, was saying all this crazy stuff with Trump if hopefully he becomes kind of irrelevant, you know? So was was that tweet from January 6th? Yeah. 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 And and all right, let's yeah. let's think back. And at she that was moment. in the, I mean, she went in. She went on to say, like, my staff and I are safe. We were yeah. we were in the Capitol. Yeah, like crazy. A lot of Republicans during that time, you know, changed the tune. Them. A lot right. of them did, right? Because you go, okay, I'm supporting a, a president that's outgoing mm-hmm. for something that's really happening bad on our country. So, you know, in the moment, but still, I can't believe. She would, don't you understand when you delete these tweets, how it looks worse? Like just own up to it. I know you're running for the second most powerful position in the world, but that's not going to stop you from getting your votes from the far right, in my opinion. It's also kind of a boomer mentality of like, oh, I deleted the photo. It's gone, right? You're like, no, oh no. But I love, like to me- to me, that Liz Cheney is picking this fight yeah. shows that she had real beef with Elise. And it seems like Elise probably was the one pushing her out. And you know but what's yeah. wild is I think someone like there's Liz a vendetta. Cheney, I also yeah. think someone like Liz Cheney is the reason that someone like Elise Stefanik got into politics. Totally. Totally. God, totally. the world is spooked up. So crazy. Oh. Right? Because you guys have happy tweets, right? Somebody's no, I have a really sad one, actually. Well, oh, right. God. <laughs> mine, mine's kind of Hollywood-ish, and so maybe I'll do mine next, or do you? Okay, mine's really depressing, so, but I'll go last. Jesus. Ugh. Oh, all right. So I thought I had picked mine for Hollywood because I'm with two Hollywood liberals Hollywood on elite. this podcast. Elites. Or we Hollywood like elites. Uh, Hollywood elites. Fine yeah. with me. Coastal elites. And this has to do with nuclear waste. Ooh. So as you continue continue preparations for the ceremony on March 10, it's talking about the Academy Awards. I write to urge you to include programming that recognizes the victims of America's nuclear testing. The Oppenheimer film tells a compelling story of these test programs, but it doesn't tell the story of the Americans left behind, still reckoning with the health and financial consequences. Shouldn't the victims who are still paying the price have a voice too? That's so mm-hmm. interesting. It's Melanie the Rep- It's from New Mexico. That's Melanie Sansbury. No. I feel like I read this tweet. Gabe Vasquez? No, you're talking mm. This is a, one of your favorites, Josh Hawley, editor oh, wow. from Missouri, wow. also known for his famous insurrectionist, as we're talking the about fist January punch. 6th, fist photo. Just fisting America. Yeah. <laughs> but so yeah. this was so this was really interesting. I first read this tweet in the Hollywood Reporter. Oh wow. Okay. And also, then let's go back. That you read the Hollywood Reporter? Yeah, I don't want to talk about it. I read everything. I'm a sponge. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Boy. 
And so then when I read the article, though, I went to go read Josh Hawley's statement about it. Well, first read the tweet, and then I read the statement. And what's really interesting from his statement is his letter doesn't mention anything that the reason he's talking about this is he's fighting for Congress to reauthorize this radiation compensation program hmm. that he put in the uh, National Defense Authorization Bill yeah. that was ended up being stripped from it. So once again, just like both media channels had the story completely wrong, in my opinion, and didn't talk. So at first I'm on the Hollywood Reporter side and I'm like, why is Josh Senator Holly using this? At, of course, he's using the Oscars in Hollywood to poke right. fun at something. And then I'm like, now, why isn't he mentioning the thing he wants to get in the bill? And then I actually like looked into this. I had no idea about this, but like Missouri was a place where they were mining uranium, basically, mm -hmm. for the Manhattan Project. And oh, they wow. never like fully cleaned it up well. So like this goes to like government kind of telling you, hey, everything's fine. This is great. And then, you know, 80 years later being like, oops, all, we right. didn't do that good Did of a job. we leave that there? Oh my gosh, I'm so yeah. sorry. Wow. And basically, so a big firm, pharmaceutical firm there, I'm going to, I'm like, just not do well in pronouncing this. <laughs> Malincrod? <laughs> no, or, <laughs> The Anyways, Apologies um, to the Malincrops yeah. people. Yeah. They <laughs> probably do wonderful things. This gets really interesting. Uh -huh. Not only were they the uranium ore, uh, mining for the uranium ore, but later on, like this company has now gone defunct because they, they were very big in the opioid crisis. Oh, wow. Most recently. So the company is now dissolved, but split into various divisions that still manage. Some well, stuff. I take back my apologies. Yeah, apologize. so I, just like super interesting, this That's story. Funny. And wow. there's been so many news stories on this in Missouri. And it's, it's pretty sad. So like basically they were producing all this uranium. There were more than like 3,500 employees who were working on this, who were basically like working on this in close proximity as well. Like they mm -hmm. using their hands and whatnot. And... There was a report by the Army Corps of Engineers saying, and there was a quote, I don't know what this stuff is, but they tell me it's radio radioactive, so it must be for radios, said one worker. No. Basically, like these workers didn't really know what they were doing. Then they ended up dumping this at a nearby facility that was 20 acres. That facility ended up leaking. It leaked into Coldwater Creek, which is one of the most contaminated like creeks in the u.s but this is like 1981 the epa listed it as the most polluted waterway you know wow. and then so i i mean like i'm i'm telling this story because i'm on josh holly's side here right and well, i am too I'm, yeah i'm kind of i'm kind of curious to see if oppenheimer does win it's the most nominated film it if was, they do talk yeah. And if like, if someone's right. going to get up there and actually say, hey, around the world, there's a lot yeah. of issues happening with nuclear waste. Mm. And I hope our politicians are doing something. So I'm or, really uh, curious to see yeah. if that happens. That's so interesting. I mean, it is one of those things that I, 
appreciate, you know, just to like defend our livelihood for a second, like people, you know, can say like, oh, whatever movie's a movie. But I do feel like one of the powerful things about film and television is that it brings to light issues in a way that people find digestible and relatable Mm -hmm. and often allows people to pay attention when otherwise they wouldn't. And what is particularly interesting to me about this circumstance that you're bringing up is like Josh Hawley is not the typical person, I feel like, to say, oh, yeah, like, let's use films to kind of tell this, you know, to as this like powerful tool to to raise public awareness about something. And so I actually think that it's really cool that he's doing that because and it's smart. And also, that's just like really sad. You know, it's something that you don't think about. And I wonder, I would love to know if like someone has asked Christopher Nolan this in an interview, because I'm sure he knows all about it. And obviously, you can only put so much in a cool film. But but I I would love it, like, because they're going to win a bunch of awards. So it's one of those things yeah. where, like, maybe they'll so, save one so of their pages for advocacy. He wrote the letter to the Academy, by the way. Mm. So I'm going to leave it up to you, bleeding liberals, to let me know how that four-hour <laughs> show goes and if they say anything. You don't host an Oscar party at your house? I'm so surprised. Oh, that's so <laughs> sad. Their Oscar parties are great. Oh, God. You guys are yeah. so Hollywood. So funny. You do the so ballad. And drink some oh, love. All right, you ready for me to bring the mood down a little bit? Bring the mood down. Bring it down. All right. So I'm going to talk about the Israel-Gaza conflict. Oh, I know, I know, I know. But it's very, it's a very... (laughs) Did Anthony just turn off? Anthony shut his computer off. He's like, I can't handle it. Wait, was that in protest? (laughs) No. Is that a protest? Maybe. I don't do protests that well. No, but specifically the news that there was maybe people in a specific UN agency that were involved Mm. in the October 7th attack. So this is the quote. We cannot stop the delivery of aid and the support of an organization that is essential to the livelihood of about 2 million Palestinian people. Very Mm. big. Can you read it again? Can you read it again? I'm sorry. Yeah. We cannot stop the delivery of aid and the support of an organization that is essential to the livelihood of about 2 million Palestinian people. Mm, interesting. All right. I got to say Democrat. Um, and we're saying veteran. That's interesting. Uh, veteran, veteran, veteran. Well, you love this person. Uh, Seth, Seth Moulton. Moulton. No. <laughs> second, second love. Oh, Jason Crow. Yeah. Jason Crow, yeah. So Jason okay. Crow is a Democrat from Colorado. He is a former Army Ranger, right? Yep, yep. And so he basically is talking here. Let me just fill you in on what's been happening. So Israel is alleging that they have found evidence that there were 13 employees of a UN relief agency that operates in Gaza who were directly associated with the October 7th attack. They allege that these individuals took part in kidnapping hostages, were told to set up operations room by Hamas, and they allege that at least one of the employees of this aid group supplied logistic support to the attack. In response, the U.S., Germany, and the U.K. are among a group of countries that have pulled funding from this agency. It is called the U.N. Relief and Work Agency, which I just learned today people say UNRWA, which is kind of UNRWA. strange. UNRWA. Mm. So just a little about UNRWA. It operates in Gaza, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, Jordan, Lebanon, and Syria. And it was specifically 
built or founded to help Palestinian refugees. So basically after the 1840 war, where Palestinians were forced out of their land, their homes, this organization was developed to help Palestinians resettle, to provide aid for them in the new places that they were living, which I just listed above. So this organ, this part of the UN is almost entirely funded by voluntary contributions from UN member states like the United States. Hmm. So the U.S. or any of these other countries can pull funding at any time. Currently, the UNRWA employs about 13,000 people in Gaza, and they provide humanitarian support like education, healthcare, and food. And the caveat I want to put with all of this is that Israel has essentially sent over this packet of allegations, but they have not actually provided the press or the government with, with evidence that this is what's happening. So, so everyone is waiting to basically see what the evidence of this is. And with Jason Crow, who for all intents and purposes, I would not describe as like a super far left politician. What he's basically saying is we can't tie humanitarian aid to this political conflict. Like, and he was at, and this was from a speech that he gave in Congress. What he's saying is as a person who has been in combat zones, the humanitarian aid that is there is, should be seen as separate from the conflict. And he is in full support of an investigation into this and that, of course, if there was wrongdoing to prosecute those who did wrong and do like a full sweep of what this organization is doing. But in the meantime, the fact that the funding is being potentially paused, he sees as an incredibly detrimental thing because this is one of the main humanitarian groups operating. So this is a very hard situation because obviously we don't, as a country, want to be funding an aid organization that is potentially working with terrorists. At the same time, 13 people out of 13,000, in my opinion at least, shows that this isn't like widespread corruption and the organization is on the side of Hamas. If, this is, if these allegations are true, it shows that there was like an extreme breach of security within the agency itself that needs to be addressed. But what do you think? Well, I think we've, you know, we've talked about various congressional leaders in the past with regard to this issue, like trying to lead by addressing some of the nuance with this mm -hmm. and also with the with the sort of objective clarity, excuse me, of like what is what is our ability and capacity to sort of do multiple things with regard to this issue. So obviously, Jason Crow is saying here, listen, let's take everything out of play for a moment. There is a massive humanitarian issue going on in Gaza, exactly. and we have to do something about it. That has no bearing on what Israel can do to respond to the terrorist attack that they uh, suffered. This does not have anything to do with, you know, how we're going to pursue Hamas or what the penalties for Hamas should be, but the idea of that we're going to walk and chew gum at the same time. And I think that, you know, some of the leaders who I've been critical of who have not been able to kind of separate these, these, these multiple elements of this situation, I think Jason Crow is actually setting a great example here mm -hmm. because I, I know that he is, he has been a vocal supporter of Israel and he has supported their right to defend themselves. And at the same time is recognizing as 
By the way, I think the Biden administration has done a, a, a pretty good job of, I, I don't think they're getting the credit that, that they deserve for that among a lot of the kind of pro-Palestinian wing of the, you know, younger Democratic supporters and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think I think Jason Crow is sort of doing well, to be fair, an example. Just to be fair, Jason Crow is kind of disagreeing with the Biden administration on this because the U.S. is one of the countries that has started oh. funding out. So I think that, wow, that I, can't I, I agree with the U.S. pulled funding out. What? Mm -hmm. Wait, sorry, I missed that part. Yeah, the US yeah pulled so the funding U.S., out. Germany and the U.K. are among countries that have begun pulling funding out <laughs> and. Basically, UNRWA yeah. is saying, if you stop funding us, then pe people will start, you know, that it, it's going to be exponentially worse than it already is, which is obviously horrible. Well, especially when you lose the your biggest funders, right? Exactly. The UK, the US, and Germany, the, well, biggest, what, the biggest economies in the world. Yeah. And what's kind of crazy about it is I feel like, just from sort of an outside perspective, like not being someone working directly in this issue. The fact that this is all sort of like playing out in the UN is kind of wild, you know, like that the UN is sort of issuing these decrees to tell Israel, you know, to try to force mm -hmm. Israel into a ceasefire, which obviously it's not agreeing to do. And then that this is happening. It just it feels. And look, there was a video of Brian Mast, who's a very conservative Republican, being confronted by this anti-war group in the Capitol. And they're basically saying, like, how could you vote to take funding from UNRWA and Brian Mast is like I don't care like I you know he is like steadfast like they do not deserve funding they have been associated with terror like he's taking a very hard line in the other direction and you know, I, I agree with you Michael like I think that the display of nuance is good and that's why I wanted mm -hmm. to simplify this because I think like people are completely losing sight continuing to lose sight of the nuance and, you know, just deciding like no action except the most extreme action that I agree with is is correct. And I think that but this to me is like it's so it's incredibly complicated. But personally, I just feel if the allegation is there were 13 people and there's 13,000 employees like, you know, it's like if you have some like yeah. shitty employees at your company, like you fucking fire them and deal with it. Right. Obviously, that's an understatement I, for what these people might have done. But I hate to kind of like wrap this up and put all of up. this on and put all of this on one person. But I mean, the only person who could really save this is Taylor Swift right now, going uh, and uh, doing a uh, concert on God, the border really of Palestine. <laughs> wow, you know the Gaza Strip in Israel, and the funding <laughs> will come in for that, and we could restore two countries. You know. I just want to kind of piggyback on that. I'm going to say leave that, Travis Kelsey at home. Yeah, yeah. And he is too fragile to go to power. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's got a big game. He's got a big Taylor, game. Coming. Taylor can handle it. But Travis, no, what I wanted to piggyback though is like, I, and I know that like this is a really like fucked up sad piece of news that I shared, but I like even like maybe I'm being infected by like the Swifty gene. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like there is something that's like so nice about seeing like two very public people be happy. And I don't know, like this is so sappy, but it's like it is a reminder. No, you guys are laughing at me. I'm going to stop. Well, it's a reminder of what? Go on. It's just a reminder that like we talk about all the horrible shit that's happening in the world, which mm. like 
can't be understated. But I also think that it's like a moment, of course, like winning the Super Bowl and putting on like a multi-billion dollar tour is not in all of our futures. But we all have like things to be happy about and to celebrate. And I think that it can often, Anthony won't stop laughing at me and I'm trying to say something (laughs) earnest. Come on. So I think that it shouldn't, like all of this stuff is really serious and important that we talk about. But I also think that it is okay to all like take a moment and just be happy in your life and not oh my god he anthony so here's my here's my question why like why can't you handle optimism anthony i i'm i i blocked out there i apologize stop himself <laughs> from laughing when i'm just trying to tell people you know to- valentine's is around the corner but you know i'm gonna <laughs> let michael just you know are you sad about Valentine's Day because you're single? Of course, I'm always alone on Valentine's Day. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love Valentine's Day. I no. get to be with someone I love myself. Anyway, here's my question. I'm going to leave you with a question here. Do you think that given the size of Taylor Swift's megaphone that she has with her fans, with the world being arguably the most popular musical artist celebrity maybe in the world right now do you think that she has a moral obligation to stand up for the things she believes in and to voice her opinions on the issues that she feel matter she feels matter i don't think anyone has a moral i don't think anyone in the public eye has a moral obligation to do anything personally yes because i think i think that that's putting an immense amount of pressure on someone who's just a human being. And I th- I don't know if you guys watched the documentary about her Miss Americana mm-hmm. on Netflix, but the scene where she like the scene where she decides to come out and voice her opinion in this Tennessee Senate race is a really amazing sort of example of that of like she's not feeling that she has an obligation and she's saying like I'm a citizen, I want to speak up for what I believe in just like the rest of us do. So I think obligation is the wrong word, but I do think that she has immense power and she knows that. And I think that even if we don't have an obligation, we all have the privilege of using the power that we have to influence the things that we believe in. Yeah, I think I think it's tough for me if I was in that position and I knew I had that big of a voice not to speak up. Right. I know people are looking to you and you're a leader just because of Oh, you know, I mean, like you know the Biden campaign's already working on her. Right, like, right. Um, I mean hopefully. if uh, but but also, I mean, like, I, I, this sounds crazy, but like Taylor Swift is actually someone who could maybe change the election. No, I know. So, I, yeah. I agree with you. Know, you. So, so when you're sitting there and going, what do I truly think is good for the country and the world? And I'm going to sit silent that, you know, I don't, I don't agree with that. I, I think I, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll say in closing here that I think Absolutely, she has a moral obligation to do good. And whether that is defined by voicing her personal political views or not is is up to her. But I think that the larger the megaphone one has, the greater the moral obligation, and I stress the word obligation, that that person has to use that voice for good, particularly when we see so many people use their megaphone for for not good, for selfish reasons, et cetera. And I think that Taylor Swift has a very unique opportunity right now 
to in in the political conversation in the just the social and and political discourse that we're in right now that i think that maybe there is a way that she can be a bridge and and not a divider in in this 